I think that what we have before us in Romans 8.1 is the greatest promise in, in the Bible. I think this is what, beyond a doubt, the greatest promise in Scripture. And notice that there is a word in the middle of this sentence. There is therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation, right? So I want to look at that because I want to, I want to check and see today if you and me, if we really, if we really believe this and if we're, if we're really willing to allow this to govern our thinking, our choices, our attitude, and our affect as we live the Christian life. Now, Romans is a wonderful book, and I'm sure many of you have read through parts of it, and, and I've maybe been confused by parts of it, but, but, man, Romans is this great treatise of Christian truth that, it, wherein the Apostle Paul lays out this whole understanding of, 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 of how a person is made right with God, how a person uh, gets right with God. And so Romans describes, in Romans, Paul describes the righteousness that is by faith, and the, the whole issue of righteousness is, is at play here, and that's a word that in the Old Testament meant something a little different than it comes to mean in the New Testament. It ultimately, in its core, in its fundamental meaning, it means that which is right, right? It pertains to rightness, righteousness. In the Old Testament, it was, it was lived out and reflected in Israel's willingness to not only obey the law and honor and worship and serve God, but also in their willingness to engage in, in and there's that word again, social justice, because Israel had a calling that put them in the place of being not just God's chosen people, but God's chosen people chosen that they might be a light to the nations and God's servant people. They had a tendency not to embrace that part of their calling. We like the privilege, but we don't like the responsibility. You know what I'm talking about? We like, as Christians, to, to grab all the promises, but we sometimes recoil at embracing the responsibility. So righteousness in the Old Testament had to do with that kind of, with, up, with moral uprightness, but also with, with that uprightness as expressed in social relationships and in interaction with others. Now, in the New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul, the word righteousness becomes a very loaded word. Words have different meanings in different contexts. You know, you know what I mean? And so in the New Testament, in Paul's writing, the word righteousness, diakasune, uh, has this meaning of not just moral uprightness or not just justice, but it means specifically being in right standing or right relationship, being properly oriented toward God so that there is this, this unbroken fellowship and this unfettered relationship. So righteousness literally means being right with God. And in Paul's thought, it becomes a bit more abstract because it doesn't necessarily, it, 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 it issues forth and results in uprightness and moral uh, rectitude and, and, uh, and proper behavior, but it, its source is somewhere else. And what Paul goes to great lengths to describe in Romans is the fact that there is a righteousness, that, that there are people in the Old Testament that tried to get right with God by keeping the law because they thought, they, 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 people assumed that's what God was, that's what it was about. But Paul says, actually, here's the deal. Really, all along, God's intent was to bring humanity to a place where they understood this, that you're not made right with God by doing, but by trusting. You're not made right with God by doing, but by believing. It's, it, he goes back to Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he 
goes through these first seven chapters, basically line by line, point by point, explicating this concept and this idea that, that, what hap- that, that God's intent all along is to introduce this, this new righteousness. This, the, the, he says, there is, now there is a righteousness from God, and it's by faith. And so that's, what, that's how you become right with God, is through faith. He lets us know in the third chapter, he says, listen, everybody has sinned, and everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Then he goes on in, in Romans 6, 23. You know this is part of the proverbial Roman road that you use to help somebody to understand the gospel. He says, the wages of sin is death. But he quickly turns around and says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he goes into the sixth chapter and he says, well, you know, so since it's all about grace, that means we could just sin with wild abandon that grace may abound, right? Because where sin abounds, grace does that much more abound. And we know that's true, right? He says, so hey, then let's... Sin all the more. We can get on with the sin party because we're glorifying God because the more we sin, the more that he can bestow grace on us. And Paul says, no, you you misunderstand it if you go that way because here's the problem. He says, when we're we're dead to sin and alive to Christ, and so we can't live in that state anymore. This being right with God that happens as a result of, of, of trusting Christ's finished work will bring a change in our behavior, but the change in behavior doesn't bring that. That brings the change in behavior. We understand that? Your good life and righteous deeds and, and uh, great accomplishments and keeping the law and obeying the, the scriptures and keeping the Ten Commandments, that doesn't make you right with God. But what we'll see as we look at this chapter, because here it kind of all comes together, is that, is that uh, embracing the righteousness that comes by faith will result in that happening. It's the other way around. You get right with God first, and then you do right rather than doing right to, get with, right to get right with God. You understand that? It doesn't preclude doing right. So then in the seventh chapter, right before this, he goes into this thing. He talks about the struggle between the, 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 the uh, sinful nature and the, and, and the re- re- regenerated nature and, and the fact that, that you know, I, there's this, this thing that, I, that you experience where you want to do right, and, and yet you realize that you have, there's a constant pull, pull and a struggle. And I know none of you all know nothing about that, right? When, when, when I would do good, evil is present with me, he says. You, you don't know anything about that because I know for you, when you get up in the morning, you say your prayers and you float through your day on cloud nine with the Holy Ghost and the anointing falling on you all the way, right? Is that where you live? I suspect not. <laughs> but he says, you know, he, he says at the end of chapter seven, he, he, he's going to this, this, this thing. He says, oh, wretched, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm in this, I'm trapped in this flesh and I'm dealing with this, this conundrum and this, 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 this conflict. And he's, he's, and he's, and he, and so then he goes on, he concludes that thought and then he ends up here in Romans 8 when he says, after all I've said, you know, I've said all that, that should be the title of this series on Romans 8 because 8, one really is kind of, which I, I was pondering that, but it's like, I said all that to say this. I took seven chapters, Paul would say, if he were here this morning, to get to chapter eight to take you to this place so that you understand something, that the fact is that everybody has sinned and we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ freely. The wages of sin is death, but, there's, but we're not living off wages, we're living off gift. We don't have jobs, we have trust funds. And so... The wages of sin is, 
is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and I've got an internal struggle, and I, and I struggle because of my flesh. I'm still in this human body, and I'm still in this corrupt environment, and there's this conflict, but the conflict gets resolved here, and it begins to come into to, to clearer focus in Romans 8.1, because he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you read it with me one more time? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the eighth chapter of Romans is, 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 if you will, the crescendo to this symphony of Christian teaching and doctrine. And, uh, and, and so he, and we can look at the eighth chapter, and we'll be working through it over the next few weeks, but we can sum it up like this. He begins the chapter, notice this with this phrase, no condemnation. And if you look ahead to the end of Romans 8, you find out that he moves from no condemnation to no separation. From no condemnation to no separation. Since there's no condemnation, nothing can separate you and me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so he says there's no condemnation, but th then in, in the middle of the chapter and, and, and throughout the whole, we understand this, that because there is no condemnation and ultimately no separation, then for you and me as a child of God, there is ultimately no defeat. Say no defeat. No condemnation. Wow, that's, that, that's a heavy word, condemnation. You know what it means, don't you? You know what that word means. You, it, you, you have an innate sense of what it means. You, you know it subliminally, even if you don't know it cognitively. There's something inside of you. When, I say, so when we say someone is condemned, we know contextually what that means. Uh, we hear it in, in murder vic, uh, verdicts in, in, in states where, where the, the death penalty exists, and they'll say you are condemned to die by whatever the means is. Condemnation, it's a terrible thing. The word could be translated, somebody said it could be translated damnatory sentence or, or judgment. Uh, it's, it's a judgment reserved for those who are not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul, listen what he says about this, this thing called condemnation. And some of you this morning struggle with condemnation and some of you are in the position of having had other people around you speak condemnation into your life. Some of you are being taunted by the devil, by the adversary, uh, because you are not perfect and because you have made mistakes, as I have as well, because there's something in your life, because there's something in your thoughts, because you have a certain emotion or certain feeling about something or someone or some situation, and, and there's a voice inside your head. And believe me, it's not, it's, it, it, it's, not, it, it, it's, it's not your imagination. The voice is there. It's not an audible voice, I hope, but you know what I mean. There's a thought that's planted, and it comes from your enemy to devil saying that somehow, though you're a Christian, though you were baptized, though Though you, though you love the Lord, though you try to the, to the greatest extent possible, though you fail sometimes, that God doesn't love you, that you are condemned, that, you, that, your, that your end is going to be horrible and terrible because God will withdraw his love and grace from you because you are guilty and you are wrong and you are bad. Condemnation. Paul says, listen, there is no condemnation. What part of no don't you understand? There is right now no condemnation. There is no current condemnation. There is no future judgment or condemnation to anyone who belongs in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Say it with me. No condemnation. 
Now, you notice that he doesn't say no accusation because people will accuse you. The devil will accuse you. He doesn't say no persecution because Christians will go through persecution. I know that, that, that many of us have been through in our lives. He doesn't say there is no cross to bear, if you know what I'm talking about. Because we all have the, sometimes the cross we bear of financial challenges, of the cross of, some of us are bearing the cross of sickness or the cross of in-laws or outlaws or, or other laws or other folk in our lives. Some folk just, is, just are a cross to us. They didn't say that there's no cross to bear. He said, but there is no condemnation. Jesus Christ, our Lord who died on the cross, he took it upon himself. He bore our condemnation, past tense. He already did it, and so there is no more. There is none for us. Condemnation, to express strong disapproval of someone, to denounce or judge openly, to find guilty, to pronounce judgment. The Greek word for condemnation is katakrima. It means to divide, to separate, to judge, to decide against, to divide, to separate. You get that, that idea of, of God looking at humanity, and if you're condemned, then God has separated you out and set you aside, so you go there, you go there because you're good, so the good ones, and a lot of us think that we're all in the bad group and the good ones are go, all going to heaven, but even though we're Christians and even though we received Christ and even though we've been baptized and even though we love the Lord, somehow we're going to end up somewhere we don't want to be. If God is separate, but listen, no condemnation. No condemnation. Jesus Christ became our attorney. Jesus Christ became our lawyer. Jesus Christ became our, our, our attorney to free us from condemnation, to free us from katakrima. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, there are three conditions, I think, that describe most of the people in the world today. First of all, you notice that most people around us lack peace of mind. And, we, and, and all of the dark and dire things we talked about and prayed about today, one of the things we see, and one of the things we want to do as a people of God is go forth even as we struggle and contend with the powers that be, the powers of, uh, the principalities and powers, the powers of darkness and all those things, that as we do that, we still go forth in the peace of God, right? But people, all, people tend to lack a peace of mind. They don't have peace in their heart. And, you know, and this is for the poor and the rich alike, right? Uh, because the poor folks lack peace, you know, peace because they, of, of their plight. And then the rich folks thought that by their affluence they would have found peace. And then they found that it, it wasn't found there either. People are looking for peace of mind. Second, the world is characterized by hopelessness. You know what I'm talking about? I read an article by Robert Reich, economist, and he was talking about this pervasive feeling of hopelessness and powerlessness in our society. He's talking about in recent years, it's like, it's like you go to fly somewhere on, 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 with the airlines. It's like you take whatever they do to you and what, whatever they charge you, however they treat you. And if you, talk, if you talk about something on the plane, they can put you off the plane and you done bought your ticket. That's, the way, that's kind of the way a lot of things in our country are becoming, isn't it? There's this powerlessness and this, 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 uh, this hopelessness because it's like, it's like, wow, is this, I, I have no voice. No one hears me. No one cares. It's like, what, what, there's, no, there's no prospect of change. Hopelessness. And then thirdly, and this is probably the most pervasive dynamic in the world around us, is lack of purpose. No purpose in life. No meaningful goal in life worth living for. But I, I suggest to, to us all this morning that this one verse, this one sentence reminds us this morning of this reality that we have that there is one in whom we can put our trust amen 
that there is one who is always credible. There's one who can be counted on and someone who can believe, be believed on. And his name is what? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, his promises have always been true. He's never made a promise that he's not been able to keep. Promises. Some of you old enough remember that song from the 60s, Promises, Promises. Jesus has never made a promise that he didn't keep. In fact, someone says, has, has estimated that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. There's, there, there, there are these categories of promises, and we need to search them out and embrace them and hold on to them. There's a promise of God's presence. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a promise of God's power. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you, he said, you will receive power after my Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's a promise of peace. Remember what Jesus said? He said, my peace I give you, peace I leave you. There's the promise in God of direction on, on, the, on the path of life. There's the promise of comfort in the time of sorrow. There's the promise of strength in moments of weakness. There are all these promises in the Bible, and they're all through the Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation. But I, what I'm saying to you this morning, and what, what I just want to rejoice in and celebrate, is that I think that what is before us, Romans 8.1, is the greatest promise in the Bible. Because it's, we see it here explicitly laid out in Romans 8.1, but it's, 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 it's hinted at and, and expressed and mentioned in other places in the Word of God. For instance, John 3.16 says, there, it says this, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish. That's no condemnation, but have everlasting life. And he goes on to say in the next verse, which we often don't read, no one goes to the stadium and puts up a sign that says John 3.17. But I like John 3.17 as much as I like John 3.16. You know what John 3.17 says? For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And I want to take a little side, side trip on this and say this, that although we're saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but we understand that those outside of Christ are still subject to condemnation, understand this. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we love and serve people. This is why we shine our light. That's why we keep hope alive, if you will. This is why we, 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 we work with diligence and with, 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 with focus and with energy because of the fact that Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. So the same freedom from condemnation that you have received in I've received, God wants to extend to anyone. He says, whosoever will, let him come. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want us to think this morning about, about this great promise. And first of all, let's just take it apart a little bit more closely. Notice the recipients of the promise. Who are the benefactors of this promise? The beneficiaries. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ. How many of you are in Christ this morning? How many of you are in Jesus? Amen. Then what he's saying is for you, guess what? Here's the promise. There's no condemnation. This promise is realized by those who are in Christ. The Bible says that you and me, those of us who are in Christ, will never be brought into condemnation. It means we'll never, be, we'll never stand before the judgment seat of God and be condemned. It means that God has nothing to hold against you. Can you get that through your, I won't say thick skull, <laughs> through your pretty little head? God holds nothing against you if you 
are in Christ Jesus. God is not mad at you. God is not angry at you. I know it's hard because in life, some of us, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a sensitive guy, and some of us, <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> not too sensitive, but you know, I mean, I, I care about how people, um, my relationships, and what people think of me and stuff. To a rel- relatively, I'm not. I don't think I'm a total people pleaser, but I'm sensitive. You know, and I don't want people to be mad at me. You know, but some of us, we, we and, and you know how it is when you when when people got you know when you notice people are mad at you or holding stuff against you or angry at you it's, it's kind of unsettling but the problem is there's some of us that we we though we are christians and i keep giving this definition though we've placed our faith in jesus though we've been baptized though we were serving god and some of you've done some wonderful things in the kingdom of god god has used your life and sometimes it's those who have been used by god the most powerfully to serve others the devil comes and said god is mad at you God got something again, and then people will do it because, you know, you made that mistake 35 years ago. You, 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 that one dirty deed where you, where you turned aside from the way in that moment of weakness, and there are people that for the rest of your life will hold that over your head and say, you know what, I don't care. And I used to hate some, I got to, I learned, I grew to hate some of the rhetoric from some, right, because people say, you're going to bust hell wide open. And they be saying, first of all, what does that mean? And secondly, how dare you talk to Christians that way? How dare you talk to children of the king that way when the word of God says, therefore, there, I don't care. Some, yes, somebody made a mistake, and yeah, they may, have to, they may suffer the consequences, but, but if you're in Christ Jesus, God is not mad at you. God's not holding anything against you. You don't have to wait for the, the hammer to fall as though God is somehow going. And man, sometimes when I was coming up, I was like, you know, you think you're going to be blessed by God, but you didn't, you didn't treat me right, so you're going to go down the way, and God going to fix you. And I know I know, I believe what you, you reap what you sow and all that, but I'm, in the next message, I'll talk about this. This ain't karma, and grace is something else, and we live in another place, and so though we want to be responsible, and though we realize there are repercussions and, and, and consequences to our deeds and to our actions, on the other hand, we don't live in a kind of, of spiritual reality where, where that the, everything that we've done, whether we're in the faith or not, that somehow it's all going to be part of this big karmic uh, judgment over our lives, and so you'll, because of that one thing, you'll never, you'll, you'll never... Remember, it was, um, it was uh, I think it was, um, it was my wife, it was, what's that boy's name that, uh, in Kansas? Stephen's friend, remember? And it was one of your uncles that, that once said to him, yeah, you'll, Jonathan, that was this big joke. We had a whole road trip in, in, back in the 80s, and, uh, and my wife's cousin was a youngster at the time, and some, some older person in the family had said to him, you'll never make it. And so they would be sitting in the back of the car, and they'd look at each other and say, you'll never make it. And then they would laugh, and the other one, then something would do, somebody would, one of them would do something, you know, and, and one would say, you'll never make it. And it was a big joke, right? And I said, that was so funny about that. It was funny to them, and it's funny to me. And it's, but it's not funny. You know why? Because for a lot of us, there's a voice in the back of our heads. It's like a voice of a surly teenager saying, you'll never make it. You'll never succeed. You'll never find peace. You'll never be blessed. You'll never get over the hump. You'll never get out of the pain in your life. You, and you, you, you are not going to go to heaven. When you die, you're in for a rude awakening. That, my friends, is the voice of the prince of darkness. Because Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Notice something else about this promise. We, a lot of people like to look at this in terms of the future. There will be no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So at the end, those, some of us are going to make it. But what he says is here, there is no condemnation, condemnation for us right it's, it's very telling that he included the word now because he said, could have just said, therefore there is no condemnation. He says there is now. See, people say, well, you know what? When you get to heaven, there won't be no condemnation. But right now, the hammer's, the hammer's about to fall. Writing's on the wall. You don't know if you're going to make it or not. But if you get to heaven and you're saved, then you'll know that there's no condemnation for you. you. You made it. But that's not what the word says here. The Bible says that there for you is a child of God, therefore there is what? No. What? Did we, you just missed the biggest word I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> therefore there is. Now. Say it again. Now. Say it one more time. Now. Say it two times. Now. <laughs> I got you where I want you now. <laughs> got to know how to work a crowd. <laughs> Say it three times. Oh, you. Now, the result of this promise is that there is now no condemnation, and that means that God Himself has nothing to hold against you now. It means you can walk in His peace now. It means that when you woke up this morning that I don't care what, 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 you, what your struggle is and what your issue is, that you can, you can talk to Jesus and you can talk to God the Father through the Spirit. You can, you can have communion and relationship and fellowship with him because he's in this moment now. He's holding nothing against you. Your sins were nailed to the cross. When Jesus died, he died for you past tense. He died for your sins past, present, and future. He paid the price not just for the sins that you committed in the past, but for the ones that you're committing right now. Some of you are sinning right now because you're looking at me saying, what's wrong with that crazy Charles when you're sinning? Don't sin. And he died for the sins that you have yet to commit, the ones you think you're too good to commit that you might. And I'm not saying that you should or that it's inevitable, but we, 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 we're going to sin again before we leave this place, this, this planet. He says, I paid for all those sins. And so now, in this moment, today, in your daily life, from moment to moment, from experience to experience, you live in my grace. Now there is therefore no condemnation. He holds nothing against you. And it's in the Greek, in the Greek text, it's, it's an emphatic double negative to really to, to, to stress that there is not one iota, not one ounce, not one tiny bit of condemnation there's not even you know some of y'all some of y'all remember when you'd be you know talking about you didn't have a little you, you got it some, some sometimes you'll have a soda and somebody say is it, you got anything any soda left you say i got a little corner and you say where'd you learn that from <laughs> you don't know what a corner is i know but well, you don't know about no corner <laughs> this, yeah a little there, there ain't a corner there ain't a drop of condemnation in Christ, for those of us in Christ Jesus. Now, now, now the, promise, the promise doesn't say that we're perfect. 
it, it doesn't say that there are no faults in Christians. The promise doesn't say that there's not any cause for, for condemnation because we, we do some condemnable things, some contemptible things. We sometimes mess up real good. The Bible doesn't say that there's no imperfection because none of us are perfect and there is imperfection. The Bible doesn't say that there's no flaw. The Bible doesn't say that there's no sin. The Bible doesn't say, the verse doesn't say that there's no temptation. But what it says is that there is no condemnation. So you will be tempted and tried. You will slip and fall. You will have sorrow and trouble and trials. And day by day, all of us will face the challenges of life. But Christ is there, and Christ reminds us of this. Because I am here, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And then finally, let's just kind of jump ahead a little bit, and we can get a little handle on the reason for the promise. Because we say, how in the world can God do such a thing? How can God say that we're saved right now? A lot of folks don't understand that. They think, well... You know how you, some of you thought before you actually heard the gospel, right? And you thought that, well, I guess to be right with God, what you do is you, you show up to church a whole lot, give an offering, maybe get on the Ursher board. And then at the end, you hope, because you didn't heard too many bad heaven jokes, you hope and when you stand before, when St. Peter meets you at the gate, and that's all fictitious, right? That, that you hope that in that moment, you don't, you, you're not in for some kind of nasty surprise. Or the other, the other model of thinking is that, well, you know, life is this big scale. And so I, I do bad and I do good. So here's the thing. I'm just going to try to make it so that my good outweighs my bad. Let me tell you something. Your good will never outweigh your bad on the, on the scales of justice. So you go out and you, you mess around and do a whole lot of heinous and bad things, and then you give a whole lot of money to charity, think you didn't balance, you didn't tip the scales. That doesn't work. But in all of those models, it's like you don't know till you get to the end. But I'm telling you something, my friends. You can know in this moment today that you have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful assurance? We don't, we don't have to walk in and out of here wondering, but you can know in the moment that you have a right relationship with God because you says for those who place their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. But how does God do this? How can God say that we're saved right now? Well, if you jump down to verses 33 and 34, and I'm going to read them for you, Paul tells us this. And maybe someone, because someone might say, you know, because somebody's, you might, you might be in here today. Maybe you're a spy, or maybe you snuck in to just see what these Christians are talking about. You maybe you know us, and you say, well, you know what? I I, I see these people in there, but there might be somebody from the hood, you know, and and they and they say, I, I saw you, I saw him sin, I saw her sin. I know what you, I know what's going on with you. I saw them, I saw that Christian do something that's wrong. Isn't that Christian that Christian this is bad? Isn't that Christian lost? Look at what he says and listen to what he says in verses 33 and 34. Stay with me. We're almost done. He says, "Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen?" Who will bring any charge? Who would we can put it we can paraphrase it like this. Who would dare to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. God says, this is my business, and I do it based on faith. And so who are you to bring a charge before the courts of heaven in the way that Satan did in the case of Job? Take everything he has, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. He's no better than anybody else. He's just doing good because you blessed him. He says, who can do that? 
Who would dare to do that? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? He said, no one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Oh, you see that, my friends? Oh, let me try to let's try wrap this up. But you see what's happening there? Not only is there no condemnation, but, but Jesus himself is our advocate. So now, here's the deal. Regardless of what people may say, you know people do talk, right? But regardless of what they say, regardless of what the devil may do, regardless of how you feel about it, and you may feel condemned, and you may feel that you have failed as a Christian, and you may feel as though you are lost. The Bible says if you are in Christ, you can never be condemned. And here's the reason for it. Here's the reason for it in verse 33 and 34. Number one, because Christ died. Number two, because Christ has risen again. And then finally, because when God raised up Jesus from the dead, he was telling all the world that he accepted the finished work of Christ on, on the cross and that Christians who put their faith in Jesus would be free from guilt and condemnation. But then there's the, 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 the final reason is this. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, I know for some of you, for some of you, it's good news, it's good news to know that your mama's praying for you. Yeah. It's good news to know that your grandmother is praying for you or was praying for you. It's good news to know that somebody, one of your friends is praying for you. And you know sometimes the brother's on the street. You say, hey, man, why don't you come to church? He says, well, I ain't ready. I ain't, I ain't in no shape. But, you know, when you go to church, say a prayer for me. And I'm, so it's good. I'm sure for that. If you tell me, hey, you know, I'm going to do that. And sometimes I tell people, and I do it. But you know what? Think about this. You think, think about your relationship with God the Father when the God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who had, is in perfect relationship with the Father, that's what he does. He ever lives to make intercession. That means to speak to God on our behalf, to stand in our, in our place, to, to advocate us, to represent us. Christ Jesus is our defense attorney. You thought Johnny Cochran was bad. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Oh, but this law, this, this, this law, I'm, I just suspect, I don't know what you I, I suspect that the, the, the dear uh, late uh, Mr. Cochran, I, he probably lost a case or two here and there. I don't think any attorney has a 100% record in, in, in criminal defense. I just doubt that. Uh, but but, but I'm, I'm talking about a, a lawyer who has never lost a case. I, I'm talking about a lawyer who has the ear of the judge Who's in the judge's? Who's in the judge's family, if you will, is his son, the judge's son, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now the Bible doesn't. I mean, he doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't promote sin. He's not. He's not saying go ahead and just sin as much as you want. But he's saying this. I know that you're human. I know that you're still in flesh. And if you sin, and when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We have a defense attorney. So every time you sin and every time you fail and every time you do something that's out of the will of God, Jesus is there to plead your case before God. You've got to get this into your spirit because until you do, you will remain the devil's punching bag. Because you keep thinking that if I can just get more perfect, that then I won't have to deal with this feeling of condemnation. You will never be perfect enough to beat that 
The only way out is to realize that I don't care what I've done. I, I, I'm sorry for my failures, and I confess my sins to God, and I make it right where I can. But the promise that I stand on, the promise that I live by, is this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm done, about done, but let me just return to the title of the message. And so I want to ask you this, in all respect and all love, so you don't think I'm being harsh, but what part of no don't you understand? Ask yourself that question. Say, self, what part of no, when God says no condemnation, what part of that don't you understand? Can you define no? Well, no means no. And remind yourself, this is, you know, a little crassy, but no means no. When God says there's no condemnation, we always want to put the word but in there and put a well, but you know, I, I, I couldn't stand because I was going, you grew up in, in, in some folks, they can't preach grace in the same sentence without putting the fear of God in you. You know, God is a God of grace, but you better live holy. Right. You remember, remember John Beacon? God, you know, it was always, God's a jealous God. It's like, you talk about grace and love, but he going to get you. Don't want to give the people too much grace. Don't want to give them too much love. Don't want to set them too free because you got to keep a little rain on them. Otherwise, they'll come back. When the devil tries to pin guilt and shame and condemnation on you, you remind him, what part of no don't you understand? My God says there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. And since I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation towards me. What part of no don't you understand? Jesus died to free us from the grip of sin, from the guilt of sin, from shame, from condemnation. And so here's, this, here's the deal, and I'm done. But as I close this morning, here's the question. Have you invited him into your life? If not, before you leave here today, you need to pull me or Elder Willie or, or Greg aside and, and, and let us pray with you. Because this is the deal. This is the offer of God. God's not offering some kind of, some kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, I'm going to give you a contract. and you try real hard and do real good, I might let you in. God said, if you put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for, for, for the sins of, of, of the lost, of lost humanity, if you do that, this will be true for you as well. And you can, you can live and rejoice and revel in this promise that there is no condemnation. And you can live free. You can live above guilt, above shame, above condemnation, in confidence and peace and in joy. That's God's promise to us. The greatest promise in the Bible. What do you think? What do you think? What part of no don't you understand? You got it?